1: This is Asked and Answered questions with Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola.
2: You know, Labs, I heard a rumor, and I don't want to expose anything, so I'm sorry. We can cut this out if it's not true, but you were called into the locker room at halftime and were brought into the council to decide on the switch at quarterback in the Jets game. Is that true? False? No comment? Uh, well,
1: no, I was, I was called in to uh, and, I, and asked um, you know, what do the fans want? Because we absolutely know that what the fans want is definitely the driving force behind every decision that's made. And so, and since you have the finger on the uh,
2: pulse of the fans, that's why you got brought in there.
1: Well, and I, and I kind of, I kind of stepped back and said, you know, I can't do it without you there because, um, (laughs) you're, you're the purveyor of all of the, uh, asked and answered, uh, questions. And so, um, We flipped a coin.
2: Uh, That's the best way to make any big decisions. That's how I decide everything in my life. 50-50 shot.
1: That's how the Steelers ended up with Terry Bradshaw. (laughs) Don't knock it.
2: (laughs) Well, actually, you know what? Speaking Speaking of of Terry Bradshaw and speaking of quarterbacks, Paul Heinbaugh from Strongsville, Ohio, he asked about a quarterback in the Wayback Machine, not Terry Bradshaw, but Terry Hanredy. What was Terry Hanredy's record as a starting quarterback at Notre Dame? Also, in what round was he drafted by the Steelers in 1969?
1: Terry Hanratty um, was, you know, he played, well, first of all, he was from um, Butler, PA, which is just north of Pittsburgh, about an hour. Um, So he was a Western Pennsylvania guy, too. And uh, he he was the starting quarterback for Notre Dame during the 1966, 1967, and 1968 seasons. So... Uh, during those three years, Notre Dame's record combined record was twenty four four and two. So, uh, during his college career, Hanratty completed and, and let me just listen. Let let me say this and then listen to the stats I'm going to give you. Um, Hanratty finished in the top ten in the Heisman Trophy voting each of his three years as Notre Dame's starting quarterback. Tenth, um, no, excuse me, eighth. Uh, as a sophomore, 10th as a junior, third as a senior um, behind O.J. Simpson, who won it that year. Okay. So now, Heisman Trophy winning um, guy, not, well, let me say this, um, candidate, contender. Yes. Uh, and these these are his numbers. He completed 55.3% of his passes, which, um, you know, wouldn't even get you a mention these days. And he threw twenty-seven touchdown passes and thirty-four interceptions, <laughs> more interceptions than touchdown passes. That's how the position kind of has evolved, um, from the times that Hanratty was a, uh, I don't know, one of the considered one of the premier uh, college quarterbacks of his era. Uh, okay, so anyway, the nineteen sixty-nine draft comes around, and Steelers fans, Notre Dame quarterback from Western Pennsylvania, who they think. Who do you think they wanted in the first round? (laughs) Huh? Who do you think they wanted? Chuck Knoll had the audacity to pick this guy named Joe Green. How dare he? I mean, what was he he thinking?
2: Talk about not putting the team's Uh, best interest in hand. (laughs) I mean, seriously, Chuck.
1: (laughs) Um, But um, Hanratty, again, while he had a great reputation as a college player, and he played for probably the marquee college program of his era, when he was in college, Notre Dame. Uh, the Steelers got him on the second round. 30th overall pick. He was the third quarterback picked in 1969 behind Greg Cook from the University of Cincinnati, who went to the Bengals. Fifth overall. Turned out was going to be a great player. Injury ruined his career. Mm. Uh, and then Columbia's Marty Domries. Imagine an Ivy League quarterback <laughs> Top ten <pick>. being drafted <laughs> in the first round um, of the NFL draft. He went ninth overall to the Chargers.
2: Couldn't imagine it happening. The only Ivy League quarterback that I know of is Ryan Fitzpatrick, and he's long gone from the NFL. Yes. Mike Foster from Ewa Beach, Hawaii. The NFL went from blacking out games regionally back in the day, no matter what, to blacking out games if they aren't sold out. Why?
1: Well, the original fear of, you know, when television – kind of started taking over the NFL, and, um, you know, we've seen that uh, evolve even more in that direction, um, uh, you know, as we've gotten into the 21st century. But the original fear was that televising games in the home team's market would negatively impact ticket sales. Um, But then, you know, the owners got together, and the the decision was made to kind of like, um, you know, King Solomon cut the baby in half. Um, So you could televise home games, but only if they were already sold out 72 hours before kickoff. So the home teams would protect their gate. um, And, you know, what what was becoming a more important factor here was placating the broadcast partners. Because, you know, for example, uh, the New York Giants, when they were a really good team, you know, back in the 50s when... You know, television first started, um, you know, gaining a foothold in the NFL with the 1958 NFL championship game. You know, not having half of the New York Giants or potentially not having half of the New York Giants um, uh, schedule broadcast in the number one media market on earth, you know, was not something that, uh, you know, the networks were real excited about. So the NFL, as I said, split the baby. And so then this led to more inventory for the broadcast partners, which in turn led to increased rights fees uh, to the NFL. And let's not forget, those rights fees are split with the players uh, to continue growing the pool of money that determines the amount of the salary gap each year. So uh, as I was told one time um, by someone who I admire I admired very much, whenever the question is why, The answer is money.
2: Randy Pickrell from Dayton, Ohio. I seem to remember in the past that teams that signed a player from another team's practice squad had to keep the player on their 53-man roster until the end of the season. Is that true, or am I just getting old?
1: No, um, I don't ever remember that being the case. And actually, um, in the mid-90s, there was absolutely no rule obliging a team that signed a player from a team's practice squad either to put that individual on his 53-man roster at all, and certainly there was no um, time frame into how long, you know, that team even had to continue to do business with that player. Because, you know, Jacksonville joined the NFL for the 1995 season. Their first head coach, Tom Coughlin, um, you know, he developed a reputation of signing players off teams practice squads, teams that the Jaguars were about to play, then the assumption was, and some players actually even talked about it, after they got their brain picked about the team they were just on, the Jaguars played that team, then Coughlin would cut them. So (laughs) um, the, the league didn't really think a whole lot of that policy. And so now what the rule is, is that if one team signs a player off another team's practice squad, The team signing the player has to put that player on the 53-man roster. You can't just put them on your practice squad um, like Coughlin was doing. You know, maybe pay him a little bit more. Um, And then you have to keep him on your roster for three whole weeks, three full games, let me put it that way. So that kind of eliminates this kind of, you know shopping or espionage or whatever it is it's <laughs>
2: just gonna say because Tom you... Coughlin's operating an NFL espionage <laughs> in the mid 90s
1: <laughs> um, but well it wasn't against the rules no, so yeah you know, right so um but uh, you know if you're not interested in this guy or don't need a guy you're not gonna just sign him. I mean just to have because um, just I mean, teams don't do that Counts on the cap, obviously, because there's a significant bump in pay from practice squad pay to rookie minimum. And, uh, you've got to keep him for three weeks. So he's eating up a roster spot. So it's, it's a guy you want or need. And so that's, that's kind of cleaned all of that up.
2: John Veach from Moore, Oklahoma. Are there any games that the team has chosen to wear alternate jerseys this season or color rush?
1: Um, all I know of for sure, I don't. I don't think there is um, going to be any color rush this year. I could be wrong, or that may change. Um, but I do know this: that for the fiftieth anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, uh, the Steelers play the Raiders December twenty fourth uh, this year. Uh, the Immaculate Reception was played on December twenty third, nineteen seventy two. So. For the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, the Steelers will wear uh, replicas of the 1972 jersey that they actually wore in that original game. And there's going to be a patch on it mm. commemorating the 50th anniversary uh, of the Immaculate Reception.
2: And we all wait with bated breath, hoping that those face masks are gray, Labs. We need the gray face masks.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm Yeah, if you're going to do it, let's do let's it. Let's do I, it. I, uh, I like, I like the gray face masks, not so much for, you know, a fashion statement or anything, but, you know, what they kind of make you remember.
2: And I'm all about the high fashion. Mike, or excuse me, <laughs> Mark Iannitti from <laughs> Rochester, New York. What's the benefit from putting TJ Watt on injured reserve as opposed to just having him sit out until he's ready to play?
1: Well, when you put a player on injured, on the injured reserve list, he then does no longer – he no longer counts against your 53-man roster. And, um, you know, in a situation like T.J. Watt, well, since uh, Mark brought him up, let's just use him as the, the example for this. You know, he's not going to be able to practice. So you're going to – you're having a guy you're, – you're a guy light every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, you know, the discussion – Uh, happens in conjunction with medical personnel. So, you know, I'm sure that after the MRI of TJ Watts pectoral and all that other stuff, uh, the Steelers were informed that, hey, this guy, isn't. he's going to need, you know, a good three weeks, maybe longer, just a rehab. So he's not going to be available. So that's the advantage. You put him on IR. um, uh, You don't have to count him on your roster. You can put someone else on the roster so you're not going shorthanded on practice, on every day in practice, and then when you're trying to formulate your game day roster, um, you're not going short-handed in that
0: respect either
2: george ragsdale from northport florida when will the date and time of the regular season finale versus the browns at Acershore stadium be announced
1: okay well that's a regular season finale game and so the the rule for that is um the league um has the option to flex games and that's you know networks times. Uh, not Sunday to Monday. Well, there are there is no Monday night. There had been no Monday night games uh, the last final weekend of the regular season, but that's you know in the process of changing as well with this new TV deal that was signed. But did money have um, something to do with that? <laughs> nah,
2: <laughs> they just wanted to. Nah.
1: Do it. <laughs> um, so, but what the league used to usually uh, in flexing games times, the league will give you. I think it's. Two weeks before, um, you, uh, the game, the date of the game, they'll say if they're flexing the time. So, uh, you know, if you're uh, getting flexed, for example, into the Sunday night spot or out of the Sunday night spot, a team has a couple of weeks, not only to, from a football standpoint, but also from a logistics standpoint as well. Um, not so much from the team that is, well, maybe from for both the teams that are going into the Sunday night slot and the teams coming out of the Sunday night slot, you know, there's hotel accommodations too. And that's a pretty big traveling party. So you, you need to uh, give the organization some time, you know, to, to make all the plans that are necessary. Now for the last regular regular season finale, the league always would, could wait until after the Monday night game, you know, of the, it used to be uh, 16 games, so it was 17 weeks. So just to use that uh, as as the barometer, of what I'm saying, they would use, they could wait until after the Monday night game on week 16 to tell you where you, when you were going to be playing on week 17. Now things have changed even more. So it's it's now they're not even telling you what day it is. The, the way the schedule is the games are for January seventh or January eighth and all of the times are kind of T B D. So what they're trying to do is obviously create the best regular season finale T V schedule, not only for the networks, right. but also to eliminate, you know, teams kinda quote unquote tanking their game based on what other teams have done. Um in, that they're competing with for either seeding or playoff spots or both so that you don't, you know, you don't have any of that kind of stuff either. So I'm going to say that I don't know exactly when they're going to announce these uh, dates and times, George, but I'm going to tell you it's unless it's a game with two teams that are eliminated from the playoffs. Um, it's going to be as late as possible.
2: Corey Goins from Petersburg, Virginia where is Calvin Austin the third? And do you think he could make an immediate impact this year?
1: Well, Calvin Austin, III third was placed on uh, injured reserve 24 hours after the Steelers cut their roster to 53 back on August the 30th. So that means he is eligible uh, to come off the injured reserve list and return to practice. Actually this week, mm. he missed the first four games. Game four was the jets, which was last Sunday. So according to the rules, um, Calvin Austin could be activated and play and uh, practice um, Wednesday. Um, and then he would be technically eligible to play uh, on Sunday uh, in Buffalo. But understand this, Corey, and all other fans interested in Calvin Austin's Steelers debut. This guy has not practiced or played since August 12th.
2: So he'll go so, right to wide
1: receiver one. Start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course.
2: Fifteen only targets. If chan,
1: only if chance fans chant his name in a game. Calvin. Calvin.
2: <laughs> Calvin. <laughs> Javier Morey from fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada asks, As an eleven year old Steelers fan, I remember there was a lot of fanfare about Franco Harris being on pace to break Jim Brown's NFL career rushing record. He was he then was signed by the Seahawks and had a dubious season and retired. What was the sentiment in Pittsburgh about all this and why didn't he play his last season for the Steelers considering how close he was to breaking the all-time rushing record
1: Okay here's the here's the Franco story uh, At the end of the 1983 season Franco Harris had 11,950 career rushing yards okay Jim Brown's all-time NFL record at the time which is now Walter Payton's but at the time it was still Jim Brown's 12,000 312 yards. So that meant, uh, by my arithmetic, uh, Franco needed 363 rushing yards in the 1984 season to break Jim Brown's record and become the NFL's all time leading rusher. Okay. Steelers, uh, they were poised to make a big deal out of it. Okay. Um, I'm sure there would have been, I don't know, whatever kind of celebrations, you know, during the game once he got close, you know, whatever. Uh, In fact, you know, at the time, the Steelers, on the cover of their media guide, they would alternate, the cover would either be a a Steelers helmet with the uh, year as the number, you know, on the front, or it would be a football, because they kept it, because it was always about the team. So, but, for the 1984 media guide, if you happen to have one, it's a picture of Franco Harris on on the cover of the media guide. Mm. So that just gives you a little inkling on how the Steelers were kind of approaching this milestone, okay? Now, shortly before training camp, um, Franco's agent informed the Steelers that he was not reporting to training camp until he got a new a contract extension. At the time, uh, Franco Harris did have a contract for the 1984 season, it was the option year on his existing contract. Option years were very popular uh, in the NFL back at that time. Very team friendly, but still very popular. Okay, so now Franco doesn't show up to training camp. Well, Franco doesn't show up to training camp. Dan Rooney digs in his heels and says, "We're not negotiating until he reports to training camp. We'll do a contract extension, but we're not doing it until he goes to training camp." Mm-hmm. So. Now the lines are drawn in the sand. Franco doesn't go to training camp on the advice of his uh, agent. Dan Rooney is, you know, Dan Rooney, and he's just saying no, we're not doing that. So, you know how that ended. Uh, he held out. He held out. He held out. The Steelers finally cut him. Uh, camp was still going on. So, okay. So then there. So it's not though he was signed by the Sea. Well, he was signed by the Seahawks but it was after he got cut by the Steelers Right. because there was no free agency at that time. Okay, so Steelers moved on. Franco goes to Seattle. Um, it was a very uh, unremarkable season. He finished it with 170 yards on 68 carries. Uh, he didn't even finish the season with the Seahawks. So Franco Harris then ends up retiring from the NFL with 12,210 yards Uh, rushing yards, which left him 103 yards Mm. short of breaking Jim Brown's record.
2: I'm sure sometimes Franco thinks about those 103 yards that he left short of breaking that record, but then he remembers the four Super Bowl rings and the Hall of Fame jacket and the number being retired and the Super Bowl MVP, and it probably goes away pretty quickly.
1: Well, let me tell you this. (laughs) Uh, It never went away from Dan Rooney. He considered that one of the biggest mistakes of his football Mm. life, allowing that Situation to, you know, get go to the nuclear option and, um, you know, have that end up that way. So Dan Rooney regretted that. I won't say more than Franco because I don't want to speak for Frank right. Harris, but Dan Rooney regretted that deeply, uh, for the rest of his life.
2: Two more questions left here and we're going to come full circle on them, Labs. Both quarterback related. The first,
1: there you go. I
2: love it. There. The first from Guillermo Lujan in Chihuahua, Chihuahua, Mexico. It was a parade of feelings seeing the change at quarterback because Mitch Trubisky is a good guy and a good player. The Steelers 1-3 record, as we can see now, are not only because of the quarterback, but it was good to see the change because Kenny Pickett has it. Do you think a quote-unquote spark was the only reason for Coach Mike Tomlin to pull the trigger on the change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I believe Mike Tomlin. Uh, I take him at his word. I mean, he said he made the change to Kenny Pickett in search of a, a spark. Um, and <clears throat> I was at the game, the Jets game, covering it. And, yeah, the 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 the, the atmosphere, um, it wasn't what it normally is at a Steeler game. Uh, fans were getting restless at the performance of the offense, the continued performance of the offense. Um and, you know, th- things were stagnating. I mean, the Steelers had gone another uh, first half without a touchdown. Uh, they needed two 50-plus-yard field goals from Boswell just to get on the scoreboard. Um, it- things were not – you know, it just didn't look very good. It didn't feel very good. And so I can definitely see and understand the thinking behind looking for a spark and – um You know, anybody can say what they want, but you hear the fans chanting. Now, what I'm going to say is that it definitely did the the chanting itself or what the fans themselves wanted on its own was not the motivating factor, the the determining factor uh, in making the change. It was more about the performance of the team and specifically the offense uh, to that point of the season. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe him that um he he went for uh went to make the change uh because he was looking for a spark and uh he got it. He did. They the Steelers ended up losing the game uh for other reasons, a couple of them being mistakes the rookie quarterback made. But um you could definitely change, feel the the, the change in the atmosphere and the energy on the sideline.
2: And finally, Victor Regoza from Southgate, California, asks what might be our magnum opus when it comes to quarterback questions. Do you think there is a chance Ben Roethlisberger could come back and
1: help us out this year? Um, I'm going to have to steal Mike Tomlin's line. <laughs> never say never, but never.
2: Victor, don't you know Ben's a podcast guy now? He's in these waters with Labs and myself now. He's too busy cutting things up and, and doing the content game to come in and play quarterback.
1: You know, I'll tell you what though, based on uh, the the worldwide popularity of this podcast, yes, I mean Ben might find that podcasting isn't uh, isn't really his forte, and maybe he just gives up
2: because he's buried by Ask and Answer downloads. Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> I think that's spot on. <laughs> He's Bob LaRiola. I'm Tom Opperman. As always, we appreciate you guys giving us a listen. We will be back again next week, so get your questions in for Labs, Steelers and Bills this Sunday, and a fresh Ask and Answer coming your way next week.